Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we have a topic that combines sport ethics, sports sociology, and sport management. Racism in sports. Beginning with a brief discussion of where the notion of race came from and how racism was born, we will then move to discuss modern-day racism in sports, focusing on the three major ways race impacts sports in today's society. So, if you ever wondered how a pseudoscience from the 17th century has crept in and remained a part of sports today, or what we as sport fans, participants, and managers can do about it, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back... Relax and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today I want to, in many ways, pick up where we left off with a number of our previous podcasts. Lately, we've talked a lot about what I would classify as sports sociology and sport ethics topics, focusing on things like protests in sports, the Fourth Amendment, and a number of other things. I want to continue along a similar line of discussion today by talking about the topic of racism in sports. Not only does it seem like an important and relevant conversation for the world today, given what has been going on, but... This is a topic that sport management professors have tackled for years through both research and teaching. So, if you might be thinking, why do sport management scholars focus so much on race? Or, how do we even see and experience racism in sports? Then this is a great starting point for you. But, before we get into that, we need to begin, as we so often do, with laying the foundation. And first, making sure that we are all on the same page and what we mean when we say the word racism. Which means we actually need to go back and first make sure that we understand what is meant by the word race and where the idea of different races even came from. And to do that, I want to go back and I want to talk about science and scientists in general. And I want to point out that scientists love creating groups and categories for things. Why? Because creating groups or creating categories provides them, provides the scientist with things that they can compare. Think about a basic experiment that is done to test a drug. In an extremely simplified explanation of testing the effectiveness of a drug, a scientist first creates groups. Mostly, they do this through a random process, but they create groups of different people. And they assign one group drug A, And they might sign the other group a placebo or a fake drug like a sugar pill that they know won't have or shouldn't have any effect on the person. After a period of time, the scientist then compares the groups, the one that has the drug and the one that has gotten the placebo, to see if there's any differences between the individuals. In other words, they create different groups so that they are able to, at the end of the day, see what the differences between the groups are. This doesn't just apply to science where individuals are doing experiments. If we look at fields of science, like zoology, the whole field is built on the idea of classifying and grouping organisms. 
Most of you are probably fairly familiar with this system of categorizing organism, a process that's called taxonomy, because you've probably learned about it in a high school biology class or maybe a science class that you took in college or, or you've heard of it in other contexts. But in general, it's a process that involves labeling organisms in terms of their kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. And we can go a step further, and we can say it's not just scientists that like to classify and categorize things, but we do it throughout the world, in all types of businesses, and we most definitely do it in the world of sports. Think about this in a very basic way, something like college sports. We classify colleges into Division One, Division Two, and Division Three, And then in Division One, we provide an even further classification by subcategorizing those colleges as FBS, FCS, and non-football. We apply grouping to our youth sports by categorizing people by ages and oftentimes by different genders, saying only boys under the age of 14 can play in this league or girls under the age of 10 can play in that league. We go even further oftentimes in youth sport that's sponsored by communities, saying that only individuals from certain areas can play in certain leagues. So the question you're hopefully asking yourself at this point is, why do we do this? Why do we look to label things and group things and put things into different boxes? Well, that answer can be complex, but let's try to simplify it as much as we can. If we look at something like zoology... We do this. We classify things. We put things in different boxes in large part so we can better understand the different organisms in the world, specifically in comparison to other organisms. For example, if we look at the tiger and we know that it belongs to the kingdom Animalia, the phylum Chordata, the class Mammalia, the order Carnival, the family Felida, the genus Panthera, and the species Tigris, we know a lot about the tiger based just on the categories that it falls into. Knowing that it falls into the class Mammalia, we know that tigers then have fur. We know that they produce milk for their young, that they are warm-blooded, that they have four limbs, and much, much more. Going a step further, knowing that they belong to the order Carnivora, we know that they eat meat or flesh. We could have the same conversation about sports and the categorization that we do within that. If we know that a college's athletic department is classified as Division I FBS, we know a lot of the characteristics about that department. We know that the department has at least 14 sports with a minimum of six male sports. We know that the department must sponsor at least one sport for each sex in the fall, winter, and spring terms. We know that one of those male sports has to be football, and that the football team can give a maximum of 85 scholarships to its players, and that the football team must have a rolling average home game attendance of 15,000 fans. And we know so much more just based on the college athletic departments being classified as that FBS designation. So why do scientists and just society in general classify things into groups in which the individuals or things in that group have shared characteristics? Because in general, it helps us all better understand the things that are in the group. That is, that scientists and scholars look to find commonalities between things, whether that's people or animals or organizations, and then create categories based on those commonalities. 
We then study unknown things looking for these specific characteristics so we can stick that new thing into a group. And that process of categorizing helps increase our knowledge of that new thing. That brings us to the idea of race. Now, the construct of race was created as a category to which we could fit people in and create a greater understanding for large swaths of individuals. Before we get into that, though, let's first begin by defining what is meant by the term race. There have been multiple definitions of the word over time, but most of them share one thing in common, and that is that race involves the attempt to, quote, categorize people primarily by their physical differences, end quote. A scholar named Montague in 1950 noted, quote, race is both a comparative and relative term and that it compares some condition or conditions in a population with and attempts to relate that condition or conditions to all other populations of the species, end quote. The construct of race is not a new one, as we can actually trace it all the way back to the ancient Egyptians, who subdivided humankind into four groups. However, the first modern-day attempt to classify people into races was by Francois Bernay in 1684, and then Richard Bradley in 1721. Like the Egyptians, they classified people into four groups. They called whites a.k.a. the Europeans and the Americans, Negroes or Blacks, a.k.a. the Abyssinians, the Intermediates, a.k.a. the Mulattoes, and the Asianics. The framework these scholars laid out was further advanced by an individual named Carl A. Leffen, who took these groupings and applied zoological taxonomy nomenclature, saying that there were four specific variations to the genus or species of Homo sapiens. Homo sapien is that taxonomy classification for humans as compared to all other animals. So Carl believed that humans, Homo sapiens, could be subdivided further based on race. And he came up with a classification system to do that. This ideology was added to by the belief that European variations of Homo sapiens, what he called Europaeus albec, were superior in temperament and culture to other variations, thus creating a hierarchical system in which whites were seen as superior to Africans or Native Americans. And this really was the beginning of the concept of racism. However, all this scientific quote-unquote work predated the term race, which didn't actually appear until 1749, when an individual named Georges de Buffon used the term race instead of the term variety to describe groups of people who he claimed shared common characteristics. In doing this, he said there weren't four races of man, as previous quote-unquote scholars had claimed, but rather that there were six. And he further hypothesized that the differences between races were brought about by environmental factors tied to where people live. Following Buffoon, a doctor named Johann Blumenbach published a book in 1795 claiming that humans constitute one species that can be divided into five races. 
It was Blumenbach that created the term Caucasian to describe the race of man that was of a European descent. It was also Blumenbach who played a key role in the creation of something known as scientific racism when he published the results of a pseudoscience. Note that pseudo means fake or false science, claiming that the shape of the cranium, that is, the size and the shape of the heads of the five different races were distinct from one another. This idea was later added to by an individual named Dr. Samuel Morton in the first half of the 19th century who claimed that through looking at the skulls of these five different races, he could conclude that Caucasians were the most intelligent race followed by Mongolians or East Asians, who he's described as ingenious and susceptible of cultivation. He noted that they were the second smartest race. These races were then allegedly followed by Southeast Asians, then Native Americans, and finally blacks, who he labeled as Ethiopians and he said was the dumbest race. The work of Dr. Moulton was used in that time to defend slavery and to push the notion that, quote, humankind can be divided into an infinite number of races with differing characteristics and capabilities because of their genes or other inherited biological features. In other words, these ideas of Morton pushed the notion of racism, which is defined in the dictionary as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior, end quote. Now, scholars have argued that racism, just like race, is a modern construct, and that racism has really resulted from three main things. Slavery in America, or the New World at that time, European colonialization of the world, and the development of something that became known as social Darwinism. Let's begin with slavery in America, aka the New World. In reference to this, it's important to first point out that we were not the first place to have slaves. But the fact is that slavery was common in other societies, but it was more akin to indentured servitude. That is, People who could not pay off their debts would often work as quote-unquote slaves to the person to whom they were indebted. The system was based in large part on what were known as feudal societies. Now, this is a key distinction from slavery in America because people in these societies were, for the most part, not enslaved due to racial differences, but rather the debt that they owed to someone. However, in the New World, Slavery was based on taking people of different races from Africa and bringing them to plantations in America where they were sold and forced to work to build an emerging capitalistic society. This system led to a hierarchy in which plantation owners actually owned and controlled living people that they called slaves. They then exploited them and they dehumanized them as a population. The dehumanization was justified in large part by the pseudoscience of the time that we've already mentioned, by the doctors and the experts saying that there were significant differences between races, that whites and Europeans were the smartest and most cultured of all the races, and that the Africans and blacks were the dumbest and least cultured. The problem was that the experts were creating 
these so-called differences to justify the immoral actions. Or at the very least, they were using extremely poor science to try to prove these things when in fact, leading scientists as far back as the mid-1700s were pointing out that the notion of the superiority of any race over the other was flat out wrong. In America, though, the notion of the superiority of whites over blacks wasn't just validated by the scientists of the time, but also by the Supreme Court, who in 1856 ruled in the Dred Scott decision that slaves were classified as property and that thus they had no rights. This helped reinforce the idea of many at the time that whites and more specifically Europeans were superior to slaves in other races. But slavery in America was not the only reason for the creation and growth of racism throughout the world. As Hersham points out, quote, The spread of European colonial rule across the world, especially in Asia and Africa in the 19th century, also resulted in the creation of racism and gave rise to it in the modern world. Just as with slavery in the New World, the colonialization of the world by European countries, meaning countries like England going to another country like South Africa, and essentially taking over, taking native people's land, forcing their religious beliefs on them and their culture on them, and making them a colony of their European country, was justified on moral grounds by leaders and scientists saying that it was quote-unquote proven that Europeans were biologically superior to other races. They even went a step further and said it was their duty as Europeans to protect and teach these lesser races how to be more civilized in culture. Finally, while all this was going on, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was published and continued to gain steam in multiple fields of study outside of just biology. For the purpose of our conversation today, it gained critical ground in the world of social sciences and led to something called social Darwinism. Now, Social Darwinism today is considered a pseudoscience theory that stipulates that races evolved over time due to geographical isolation. Scientists took this and ran with it, looking for different races around the world and when they believe to have found one, then looking to categorize it and compare it against the other quote-unquote known races. They looked at things like cranium size, and they tried to establish whose heads were bigger or smaller, and they equated intelligence to those with the biggest craniums. All of this eventually led to the ideas of eugenics and scientific racism. However, it wasn't long before these ideas and findings of scientists began to be pushed back on by other scientists. In fact, as early as 1865, scholars began to argue that the term race and the very idea of different races in the world was useless and thus should be dropped from all sciences. In 1871, Charles Darwin pushed back against the use of his theory to explain races and noted that the idea of categorizing people into groups based on race served no scientific purpose since, as he argued, all men oriented from the same race of people in Africa and had not genetically differentiated enough to form new races or subspecies of Homo sapiens. 
Darwin's notion was validated in part in 1909 when Franklin Payne Mall demonstrated that there was no difference between the brains of people of different races, thus throwing out much of the past evidence people used to support colonialization in slavery around the world. An individual named Fran Boas also pushed back against the concept of race, and it's tied to biology. In his publication in 1912, he said, quote, We have seen that from a purely biological point of view, the concept of race unity breaks down. Similarities between neighboring races are so great that individuals cannot be assigned with certainty to one group or another, end quote. In 1936, a pair of scholars named Huxley and Eilid noted, quote, The word race, as applied scientifically to human groupings, has lost any sharpness of meaning. Today, it is hardly definable in scientific terms. It is very desirable that the term race, as applied to human groups, should be dropped from the vocabulary of science. In part, it represents merely the taking over of a popular term, in part, in an attempt to apply the biological concept of variety or geographical race to man. But the popular term is so loose that it turns out to be unworkable. And the scientific analysis of human population shows that the variation of man has taken place on lines quite different from those characteristics of other animals, end quote. Another scholar who we've already talked about named Montague argued around the same time that the term and idea of different races had been co-opted over time by people who had removed much of the original meaning from the term. He said specifically, quote, The layman understands by the word race something very different from that that the scientist understands. The layman's conception of race is so emotionally weighed down with the false meanings that any attempt to modify it would seem to be met with the greatest obstacle of all, the word itself. Based as it is on unexamined facts and unjustifiable generalizations, some of us has felt that the term should be dropped from the vocabulary, at least until the scientific meaning of the term is generally understood. End quote. By the time we get up to the modern day, the fields of science have pretty much reached a consensus when it comes to the notion of race and the idea that people from different races are genetically different from one another. For example, George Armlogas stated, quote, In 1994, the executive board in the section assembly of the American Anthropologic Association passed a resolution stating, in part, that differentiating species into biologically defined races has proven meaningless and unscientific as a way of explaining variation. This was added to in 1996 when two scholars named DeAndrade and Philip shot down the scientific notion of different gene makeups for different races. They said, quote, Examination of the relation between lineage and physical distinct geographic groups that are called races, Asians, Europeans, Malaysians, and various types of Africans, reveals an interesting phenotype. Racial groups show little or no phylogenic structure. Meaning that if you look at the genetic makeup of an individual, you will not be able to tell what race they are. Craig Venter took this even a step further in 2000 when the Human Genome Project was finished. 
For those of you who don't know, the Human Genome Project's goal was to map the entire genetic code, the entire DNA sequence of humans. And Craig Venter in that project proved the concept of human race does not exist. At a ceremony at the White House, he said, quote, the concept of race has no genetic or scientific basis, end quote. But just because genetics has shown that there's no such thing as race doesn't mean the concept of race or racism has died. In fact, it seems like it's just as embedded in today's society as it was over a hundred years ago. And while people still believe many of the disproven notions of scientific racisms, we see that most concepts of race and racism have transformed. And we now talk about race more as cultural differences or as a way to compare these individuals who look different. This notion of comparison is an important one because it's at the basis of a lot of modern social scientific research which seeks to better understand human behavior. To accomplish this and better understand humans and how they act, social scientists often place people into groups and then compare those groups to see if there's any variance between the groupings that can be equated to the variable in which the individuals are grouped. For example, they might place people into groups based on their sex and then measure job performance and see if there's any difference in job performance that can be linked back to the individual's sex. In this way, race has become an important and often used grouping for social science. Why do scholars do this and use grouping variables like race? Well, one scholar named Washburn does well to answer this question in explaining how social science in research works. He said, quote, It is impossible to consider each of the two billion persons in the world when doing research. Therefore, some system of sampling is necessary. It happens that mankind does divide into great groups so that relatively small number of individuals may substitute for an entire group. One Bushman looks more like the next Bushman than he looks like a European or Mongolian. There is a great variation in each group. Races integrate and mix. Nevertheless, at present, there is no other practical method of attaining some superficial acquaintance with what mankind is like from a physical point of view. The racial classification is a simple sample system which allows a student to become familiar with the superficial characteristics of 2 billion people in a remarkably short period of time. End quote. So that is one of the reasons we see social science still focused on race. It is an easy classification system in which we can separate people, pull samples from those groups, and then do research that allows us to better understand all of humankind. And while some sampling methodology does prescribe to first separating people into groups and then randomly selecting people from those predefined groups. This is a process known as stratified random sampling. Other methods that are just as valid and oftentimes easier to do don't require such a process. For example, there's something called simple random sampling or systematic random sampling that don't require first separating people into groups before we take the sample and do our research. So just like with the genetic view of race, the view of race as a means to better understand variation between groups and help us study a larger population through the creation of subsets just isn't needed. 
Rather than helping us better understand these groupings, it actually is just further perpetrating the idea that people that are different races have differences from each other. Instead of dividing by race, it would be just as valid, if not even more helpful, if we would divide people based off of area code, or how old they are, or their socioeconomic status, or where their parents from, or their religion, or so many other grouping variables. With all that said, you're probably beginning to wonder at this point what any of this has to do with sports. Well, just like so many other aspects of our society, Sports serves as a way that we can further examine the issue of race and show how these larger societal constructs play out on a smaller scale with examples and context that a lot of people understand better. Remember, we talked about this general idea in past podcasts, so check out specifically the Protesting in Sports podcast where we labeled this idea of sports as a microcosm for our society. So the question really is, how is sport a microcosm for how society views race? Well, let's begin by going back to the claims of some of these scientists, individuals like Buffon, Morton, Blumenbacher, who all claim that whites were the smartest race and that blacks were the dumbest. Remember, these were a group of men who all said the cranium size of different races proved a hierarchy in intelligence. Remember also that today's scientists has disproven those claims. And we know, in fact, that race is not genetically based and it does not equate to level of intelligence. Yet people in today's society still believe that race equates to cognitive ability. In sports, we see this notion of intellectual superiority of races play out in two main ways. Through something called position stacking and through coaching and front office hires. When I say the term position stacking, I'm really just using a fancy label that academics have given to the idea that individuals of different races are placed or stacked in different positions on a sports team based on their race. As a couple of sports scholars named Burlow and Anderson put it, quote, Stacking is the practice of assigning certain racial minorities to some position and not others based on stereotypical perceptions of those individuals, end quote. This is closely related to something that's called the idea of centrality, which states that not only are minorities stacked in certain positions based on their race, but that whites tend to be stacked in positions that are in the center of the field or closer to the ball, whereas blacks tend to be put in positions that are further away from the ball or on the outside or periphery of the field. The easiest way to understand this is to look at an example. So let's look at football. The idea of centrality suggests that those positions which are closest to the ball and at the center of the field are stacked with white players and that those that are on the periphery of the field are stacked with minorities, primarily black players. Well, in football, those center spots on the field are positions like quarterback, center, uh, offensive guards, fullback, and tight end. The spots on the periphery are positions like running back, wide receiver, linebacker, defensive backs. So if we're applying this idea of position stacking, and if it's actually true, we should be able to go and look at the NFL and see a significantly different number of whites at those center positions and blacks at those periphery positions. 
if we go back to 2014, which is the latest numbers that I could find, in that year, 81.2% of centers and 80.2% of quarterbacks in the NFL, the two positions that are most central in football, were white. Conversely, 99.4% of cornerbacks, 88.2% of wide receivers, 85% of running backs, 81% of defensive ends, tackles, and safeties, all of these positions on the outside of the football field were black. These numbers have remained fairly consistent since 1999. And Though at the start of the 2019 season, the percentage of black starting quarterbacks in the league rose all the way up to 28%, overall, it remains that the positions most central on the football field in the NFL are typecast with white players. Hopefully, the question you're asking is, well, why does this happen? Could it just be that more white players want to play those positions? Well, no. In large part, all this goes back to this idea and belief in the intellectual superiority of one race over another, and the belief that certain positions, i.e. those in the center of the field, the ones that have the ball in their hands the most, that those positions require more decision-making and thus smarter people to play them. So while coaches today and GMs today, and even parents in youth league football, Don't come out and say that we think white people make better quarterbacks because they're smarter. People use coded racial language to make the same point. We can look at an NFL Hall of Famer, an individual named Bill Polian, who ran a number of organizations, but maybe is most well-known for running the Indianapolis Colts when Peyton Manning was there. He said prior to the 2018 draft of Lamar Jackson, who just won the NFL MVP for the 2019 season as a quarterback, He said, quote, I think Jackson should be a wide receiver. He's an exceptional athlete. He has an exceptional ability to make you miss, exceptional acceleration, exceptional instinct with the ball in his hand, and that's rare for a receiver. This guy is incredible in the open field, great ability to separate, short and a little bit of slight, and clearly, clearly not the thrower of the football that the other guys are. The accuracy isn't there. Don't wait to make that change. Don't be like that kid from Ohio State, Terrell Pryor, and be 29 when you make that change, end quote. Notice a couple of things about what he's saying here. First, he isn't just flat out saying that Jackson isn't smart enough to play. Instead, he's framing his reasoning around what the player's strengths are, saying essentially that he is a good athlete, but he lacks the skills needed to be a good QB. A.K.A. he can't throw the ball. He doesn't have the accuracy of the other players. This is a prime example of what we call coded language. Notice also that he points to another black quarterback as an example of a quarterback who came out of college and tried to make it as a starter, but eventually moved and played as a wide receiver. And while these players may appear similar coming out of college based on the surface, if we look just at race and categorize them, just as we talked about social scientists so often do, if we really start to peel back the layers, they are not similar at all. Jackson came out of college after winning a Heisman Trophy. Terrell Pryor never did. Terrell Pryor also entered the NFL through the supplemental draft after he was kicked out of Ohio State and kicked off their team because of the role that he played in something called Tattoo Gate. 
He had a number of off-the-field issues. He had a number of red flags. He couldn't even play the first half of his rookie year because he was suspended for what happened in college. So to use Terrell Pryor as your point of comparison, just because they look similar, has racial undertones. Now, Bill Polian did walk back his comments this year after Jackson led his team to the best record in the NFL and won the MVP. But the initial comments still stand and show how minorities are often treated when it comes to sport participation. Minorities, especially black players, are often looked at as being athletic first and inferior intellectually to white players. And the other side holds true too. A white kid walking onto a football field is not looked at as a great athlete. Initially, they're thought to be smarter. And so when those two kids walk onto the field, one white and one black, the white kid is much more likely to be put at a central position, whereas a black kid is much more likely to be put on the peripheral positions. The same is true in other sports as well, not just in football. In soccer, Black players are much more likely to be placed in positions like outside mid, outside back, and forward, whereas white players are more likely to be placed at center back and center mids. The center back and center mid are thought to be the positions that require more intellect, more thinking. You have to process a lot more, a lot quicker, whereas outside mids, outside backs, and forwards are thought to be more athletic positions that require more running and jumping and ability to strike the ball hard. The same is true in baseball, where the majority of black players are placed in the outfield where athletic speed and arm strength are valued, whereas white players are often placed at pitcher and catcher, positions that are central on the field, that control the ball, and are required to have a greater intellectual ability to think through the pitching process. I do want to take a second to make a differentiation when we're talking about this. What I am referencing is what's actually happening. If you look at the numbers, just as we did with the NFL, that doesn't mean that the coach that is making these decisions at youth football and high school or elementary school or all the way up into the professional doesn't mean that those people are overtly racist. What this idea reflects, this idea of centrality and the idea of position stacking reflects is that the belief in intellectual superiority is so ingrained in our culture that we don't even have to talk about it and we make decisions that reflect it. Unknowingly, oftentimes, but it still happens. So if you're coaching you sport and you're meeting all the kids for the first time, instead of you picking all their positions... Let them tell you where they want to play. Try them at all the positions. One of the biggest gripes that I have with youth sports when I see other people coaching it is they put a kid in a position and they leave them there forever. Let the kids play around. Let them try different positions. Let them see what they're good at. Let you as the coach see what they're good at. And then based off their skill set, make a decision about where to play them. If we just pre-assign people and leave them there, we are much more likely to fall into these past habits that have led us to this unbalance in numbers. This idea of intellectual superiority extends past just participating in sports. And it actually gets into the idea of coaching and coaching opportunities as well. And this is exemplified maybe best Back in a famous TV interview by Ted Koppel in 1987 with the then GM of the Dodgers, Al Campanis. 
I want to play an excerpt from that interview that aired live on ABC Nightline so you can have a better idea of exactly how people talk about hiring racial minorities as head coaches. And you can see how these ideas of intellectual superiority are actually thought about by decision makers in professional sports. Just a note about this clip. The first voice that you will hear is Ted Koppel asking the question. It is then followed up by Al Campanis attempting to answer and then a little back and forth between the two. Why is it that there are no black managers, no black general managers, no black owners? Well, Mr. Koppel, there have been some black managers, but I, I, I really can't answer that question directly. The only thing I can say is that you have to pay your dues when you become a manager. Uh, generally, you have to go to minor leagues. There's not very much pay involved. And some of the better-known black players have been able to get into other fields and make a pretty good living in that way. Yeah, but you know in your heart of hearts that we're going to take a break for a commercial. You know that that's a lot of baloney. I mean, there are, there are a lot of black <laughs> players. There are a lot of great black baseball men who would dearly love to be in managerial positions. And I guess what I'm really asking you is to, you know, peel it away a little bit. Just tell me, why do you think it is? Is there still that much prejudice in baseball today? No, I don't believe it's prejudice. I, I, I truly believe that they may not have some of the uh, necessities to uh, be, uh, f let's say, a field manager or p perhaps a, a general manager. You really believe that? Well, I don't say that they're all of them, but there certainly are short. How many quarterbacks do you have? How many pitchers do you have that are black? It, it's same yeah, but thing I mean, you know, I got to tell you, that sounds like the same kind of garbage we were hearing 40 years ago about players when they when they were saying, ah, not 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 really, not really um, cut out. You remember the days, you know, they hit a black football player in the knees, and you know, no, that really sounds like garbage. If you if you forget no, that, so. it's not it's not garbage, Mr. Cobble, because uh, I played on a on a college team, and the center fielder was black, and then the backfield at NYU with a fullback who was black. Never knew the difference of whether he was black or white. We were teammates. So it, it just might be that they, they why are, are black uh, men or, or black people not good swimmers? Because they don't have the buoyancy. Oh, I don't, so, I don't, I don't, I, it, it may just be that they don't have access to all the country clubs and the pools. Notice that just like with Bill Polian, Campanus is using coded language here. He's saying things like blacks don't have the necessities to be head coaches. Though Campanus is being much more blatant with his racism, both him and Polian are doing similar things. They're pointing out through use of specific terminology why these individuals don't fit into that position of either quarterback or head coach. Again, even though the language has changed and we can see that in the quote in the clip, and even though people aren't as obvious with why we don't have as many black people in those central positions or why we don't have as many black people as head coaches, that problem still exists today. The NFL, for example, only has three black head coaches and one Hispanic head coach. In Division I FBS college football, the highest level of college football in our country, there are 130 head coaches and only 13 of them are black. Major League Soccer only has one black head coach, three Latino head coaches, and two other individuals that identify as non-Caucasian, out of a total of 26 head coaches. 
This lack of opportunities that are given to minorities to be head coaches is not something that is unique to just sports, though. As a 2019 study found that black professionals in all industries receive less support than their white counterparts, and a majority of them noted experiencing racial precedence in racially insensitive language at work. So again, we find that sport is reflecting what's happening in society. As Skip Springs noted in that 2019 study of all industries, quote, study after study has shown that black executives perform as well or better than other executives, but are not advanced to the highest levels, end quote. Well, that exact same thing can be said of minority coaching candidates who oftentimes have comparable coaching and playing experience as their white counterparts, but are not given the same opportunities to coach. And when they are given those chances, they often feel increased pressure to not only succeed for themselves and their team, but also as a representation of their race. As Robin Frazier, the lone black coach in the MLS, and one of only five people in league history to be a black head coach said, quote, any coach that takes on any job, at the very least for personal reasons and your own personal goals, it is always going to be a big job. I don't take it on any more as such that I am carrying a torch. I want to do well, and hopefully, if I'm doing well, then maybe that makes a difference. Maybe more black coaches are given an opportunity, but it's one of many things that drives me. Let's put it that way, end quote. Frazier went on in that interview to point out something that I think is important not only for our conversation today about sports, but about racism in general. He noted that he's not experienced overt racial bias in coaching, just as many people, especially the majority in America, have claimed that they've never seen overt racism in this country. However, just because we don't have people like Al Campana saying out loud that blacks can't swim because they're less buoyant, again, scientific racism that's unfounded and factually incorrect, just because we don't have those individuals as much today doesn't mean that there isn't racism out there. Most people who hire coaches or decide what position to stick a player in won't come out and say that they're making these decisions based on race and the fact that they believe that one race is superior or smarter than another. They have civility enough to know that it isn't proper to say those things. But the embedding of hundreds of years of racism and pseudoscience into our judgments of of people does oftentimes play a role in how people think, even if only on a subconscious level. Maybe you grew up not seeing many, if any, black head coaches in the NFL. So when you get into the position to hire a new coach, you base your decision on what you know. And part of that is deciding who looks like a head coach. Well, if you've never seen a black head coach, then when one applies for your position, you might not go through and just throw out that application because they're black, but rather because you don't think that that's the model for what a head coach should be. We tend to be drawn to hire people that look like our idea of what that job should be, just as we tend to vote for people who we think look like politicians. The problem with this is that the historical racial minorities have been kept from those jobs because of this disproven view that they weren't smart enough to have them. Just like the historical minority has been kept from playing certain positions in sports because of this historical view that they weren't smart enough to play them. So even though we know that intelligence isn't related to race and that that shouldn't play a role today, 
The fact that in 1987, with individuals like Al Campanis and others, the fact that they said those things that laid the groundwork for little to no minorities being hired, which then created the impression in kids' minds over time that racial minorities don't look like head coaches, which led to decisions 20, 30, 40 years later, which then continue to perpetrate that ideology. And that is how the history of racism is being played out today. It's much more subtle and covert. But the ideas of those scientists that we talked about have been so ingrained in our history that they come out, even if only on a subconscious level, through these hiring practices and through this notion of position stacking. Maybe even more subtle, though, is the second major way that we see racism play out in sports, and that is through the misconception of athletic superiority of one race over another, something that we've subtly touched on with Bill Polian's comments. Just as with this misguided belief that different races are smarter than each other, scientific racism has also proliferated the belief that different races are superior athletes to one another. I say this is a more subtle form of racism because oftentimes in today's society, it doesn't seem racist to say that white men can't jump or that blacks are just naturally more athletic than whites or that Asians aren't good athletes at all. We especially don't see it as racist because just like with intelligence, we often use coded language, language that doesn't seem bad to the person that's using it. The problem is, though, that we're subscribing the differences, not to the genetics of the athletes or to the work and the effort that the athletes are putting in, but to their race and their race alone. As hopefully you now understand, to say that blacks can just naturally run faster and jump higher than all other races just doesn't make sense. Why? Because the genetics of someone who is white and someone who is black is not significantly different. Remember that in 2000, scientists proved that if you look at the genes of someone who is black and someone who is white, you cannot tell what their race is, meaning that race does not determine your genetic makeup, which we can take a step further to say that your race does not determine your athletic ability. Your race does not determine how fast you are or how high you can jump or how far you can throw a ball or how much weight you can lift. Yet still, we have people in sports, again, not overtly, but subtly saying things that lead those who watch sports to think differently. Two pretty well-known studies demonstrated this, one dealing with basketball and one dealing with football. In both studies, the researchers charted the words used to describe white players in black players. In basketball, they found that announcers were far more likely to use words like athletic, fast, and strong to describe black players and words like effort, hard worker, and intelligent to describe white players. They described white players further during the games as having good leadership and being determined, but often pointed out that white players lacked athleticism, calling them smart and good shooters instead. In the same breath, they used words like selfish to describe black players and pointed out that they lacked intelligence and relied more on natural skills than their counterparts. A similar study of looking at how analysts talked about players during the NFL draft found almost identical words used to describe white versus black draftees. As they said in the write-up, quote, you may notice talent, aggressive, natural, and physical were used far more frequently for black players, whereas white players tended to be described more often with effort, leader, captain, and great. 
The study went on to say, quote, only black players were described as gifted, aggressive, explosive, raw, and freak. And only white players were described as intelligent, cerebral, fundamentally sound, overachievers, technicians, workmen, desire, and brilliant, end quote. You might be thinking to yourself, why does this matter? Maybe the the black athletes were just more physical or were just more talented. But if we're talking about the NFL draft, we're talking about seven rounds here. We're talking about not just five players that we're comparing, talking about hundreds of people. Other of you might be going through examples in your head and saying, well, yeah, these words make sense because it's true. You might look at someone like Tom Brady and say, yeah, he's unathletic and slow, but he's really smart and he's fundamentally sound and he's a hard worker. You might even be comparing him in your mind to someone we've already talked about, like Lamar Jackson, and say, well, yeah, Lamar Jackson is more athletic. He is aggressive. He does have this raw, explosive speed. So what? Well, the problem is that while you might be able to pick out players from different races that fit these characteristics, it's just factually inaccurate to say that those differences are due to race. Rather, the people are different because all people are different. No one, white or black, is as smart as Tom Brady in the pocket with pressure coming at him. No one, white or black, is as fast as Lamar Jackson when it comes to scrambling out of the pocket. To subscribe that difference to the individual's race makes us think and believe that one race is better or worse at something than the other. Which, if we go back to our fundamental definition of racism, that is what we are dealing with. In addition, if we're only using words like leader to describe white athletes, then we are subtly, if not even subconsciously, saying to others that only white athletes can be leaders. Likewise, If we're only using the term like explosive to describe black athletes, we are subtly if not subconsciously saying that only black athletes can be explosive. This then leads us back to athletes being stacked into specific positions on the field and even directed to play certain sports and not others. Which brings us to the last main way that sport management scholars talk about racism in sports. And that is looking at sport distribution. Looking at the racial breakdown of baseball in basketball in football and seeing if there's any differences or trends that emerge and when we do this when we look at a sport like major league baseball we see that 58 percent of major league baseball is white and only eight percent is black 32 percent is latino and only two percent are asian or other in the nba in the nfl those numbers are flipped with 73% of NBA players and 70% of the NFL being black and 21% of the NBA and 28% of the NFL being white. What these numbers show us is there's a significant difference between the racial makeup of participants in these sports. Again, though, you might be wondering, well, why does this matter? Well, there are a few reasons why. From a consumer perspective, research shows that we are more likely to watch and cheer for athletes that look like us. So in a sport like Major League Baseball, which only has 8% of the league identifies African American, there are a very small number of black players for black fans to identify with, meaning that African Americans are far less likely to watch that sport than whites. This is reflected in the fact that only 5% of black Americans identified baseball as their favorite sport when compared to 18% of whites and 19% of Latinos. This also trickles down and affects the sports people choose to participate in. Just like we have a tendency to watch and cheer for people who look like us, we also want to play sports with people who are similar to us, people that we can share things with so we can feel close and bonded to them. 
as a result of the importance that we place as a society on race, it oftentimes becomes hard for someone to be the only white or black or Asian or Latino on a team. Studies have even found that as a result, people tend to be drawn to certain sports where their race is not in the minority. That means that black people are more likely to be drawn to play sports like football, basketball, and track and field, whereas white people are more likely to be drawn to sports like baseball, soccer, football, golf, and hockey. This split can be problematic as it may limit the opportunities to participate in sports for people of different races. And in that, it often reinforces many of the stereotypes that we have already discussed, thus further perpetrating the idea that there are significant athletic differences between people of different races. Additionally, youth sport participation is the pipeline to college and professional athletics. So if we see less and less African Americans playing youth baseball, that means we will continue to see a decline in the percentage of African Americans in the professional leagues which can lead to even less African-Americans in youth baseball, and so on and so on until that number dwindles down even more. So now that we understand what race and racism are and how we see those things in the world of sports today and how this is reflected in what we see in society, I want to attempt to end the podcast on a more positive note, and that is by answering the question, what can we, both sports managers and sport participants and sport fans, What can we do about this type of racism that we've talked about today? And there's really three recommendations that I want to leave you with. The first one is something that's simple. Watch the words and vocabulary you use when talking and describing athletes. And try to pick up on that verbiage that you use and that other people use. When I first learned that there was a significant difference in how announcers and commentators describe people of different races... I really didn't believe it. Then I began watching NBA games and NFL games, trying to pick up on what these studies talked about. And what I found was that when I listened and tried to pay attention for it, it became clear and obvious to the point that now when I watch a game, and even though I'm not listening for specific language, when someone says one of those many buzzwords that we talked about today, alarm bells go off in my head and I take notice. Doing this has helped me to watch the words that I then use to describe someone. Now, I'm not saying that we can't say that someone like Lamar Jackson is an athlete or athletic, but rather that when you call him that, know that you are calling him an athlete because he is athletic and not because he is black. By noting that race doesn't cause or that it isn't correlated to athletic ability or intellect, we are beginning to move in the right direction. By watching those words that we use and being more careful with how we talk and the meaning that we take from them, we can create an environment where people feel more comfortable playing different positions on the field, where they feel more comfortable trying different sports, where they might be the minority, and an environment where those minorities might have more opportunities to have those head coaching positions. The second recommendation, as sport managers or just people who love sport, we should look to institute sport programs for people of all races and all backgrounds. If you truly love sport, you should recognize all the good that sport and participating in sport can do for someone. As a manager, you need to make sure that all people, regardless of race, have equal access to these sport programs. That means putting the programs in the places where people are regardless of of what their status is and regardless of what their race is. Some organizations like Major League Baseball have actually done pretty well with this, instituting and starting up programs like RBI, which is Reviving Baseball in the Inner Cities, a program 
that takes the game of baseball and puts it in the inner cities and provides individuals, regardless of race, the opportunity to come out and play and learn and experience all that baseball is. Now, historically, you might think, well, why would I put baseball in the inner cities when people in the inner cities aren't watching baseball? They're not playing it. But just as with so many other things, it's not that they're not playing it because they're not interested in it. They're not playing it because they're not given the opportunity. If we go all the way back to something that Al Campanis said, and then Ted Koppel followed it up, Al pointed to the fact that African Americans don't swim because they're not buoyant, which is again, factually inaccurate. But what Ted Koppel said is correct. Maybe they don't swim because they don't have access to the pools and the country clubs and the opportunities to participate in the sport or in the activity. So we as fans and people who love sports, we need to do a better job of providing all people, regardless of where they are, with the opportunities to engage in those sports and those physical activities. Some people in the inner cities might not like baseball, but a large number might actually enjoy it. We shouldn't make the judgment as outsiders. We shouldn't make the judgment as people who don't live there, whether they'll like it or not. We should provide them with the opportunities and listen to them about what they want. And then we should look to design programs that we can put in those areas. And finally, within those areas, within those programs we create, we need to start giving more opportunities to individuals who are racial minorities to coach and lead programs. I'm not saying that we should only hire people who are minorities for youth sports or high school or college or professional. What I'm saying is that we need to give people who are minorities equal access to those jobs. We need to do a better job of looking to identify people starting at the youth level, something that we can control as sport managers, giving individuals the opportunity who might be racial minorities to coach, to be in a leadership position. Because just as racism has trickled down from these scientific ideas that have been disproven, the notion of equality can trickle up by providing individuals opportunities at a ground level within youth sports, within high school sports, within college sports. Eventually, if we provide enough opportunities, we will start to have individuals who are more qualified, who understand the game and the coaching and the management better. And that will situate them eventually to be head coaches at the professional level. And as we see more minorities in those positions of power at the professional level, maybe that even trickles all the way up into ownership structure of many of these professional leagues. Ownership structure that right now, within the three major professional sports in America, Major League Baseball, NBA, and the NFL, we only have six minority owners. But if we start to see more equality at the ground level, providing more opportunities to individuals of all races, then maybe that can start to trickle up to the point where it becomes normal for us to see someone who's a minority as a head coach. And then hopefully even to the point where it becomes normal for us to see someone who's a minority as an owner. But we have to create those opportunities from somewhere. And starting in sport at the youth level is a great place to do that. Hopefully, throughout our podcast today, you've learned a lot. You've hopefully learned a little bit about what race is and why it's this created ideology, where it came from, and how the idea of race very quickly turned into this notion of certain races being superior to others in the construct of racism. 
Hopefully we've shot down a lot of these old school ideologies and told you how they have been scientifically disproven. Hopefully you've also learned how those ideas still propagate a lot of our society, maybe not overtly, but much more subtly through the language that we use and the individuals we put in decision-making positions. Hopefully you've learned about this notion of position stacking. So if you're ever in an opportunity to assign someone a position or to coach other individuals, that you notice the general stereotyping that goes on so you can avoid them. Maybe most of all, you've learned some things that you can do in your life to try to root out some of this racism that's happening within sports. Because just as with the topic of protesting that we did in the past, sports serves as a microcosm for what's happening in society. And we can use sport as a platform for good to illustrate what society can be. And sport has always done well with that, serving as an example for integration in baseball, serving as a platform for hiring minorities as head coaches, with Bill Russell being the first ever African-American coach in a major sport, and then that having positive implications later in society. Sport can be that, and hopefully today you've learned how we can use sport in that positive way to try to deal with some of these existing issues of racism in our society. As always, please feel free to reach out to us and follow us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. If you have questions about race or racism or how it ties into sport, please feel free to shoot us a message and we'll do our best to answer. Until next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.